Welcome to the Kaleo Life Podcast. You can find more resources for gospel living and information about us by going to our website, kaleo.community. Enjoy today's sermon. All right, so uh, last week, uh, after I finished my sermon, someone very kindly approached me and asked, hey, did you mean inaugurated eschatology or inaugurated eschatology? And so thank you very much. I really, really appreciate when, when people come to me and they, you know, gently correct me about my English because that helps a lot. Um, so I meant inaug- inaugurated eschatology. Now, just quick parentheses here. If you ever want to learn Spanish, I know that a lot of the times people say, oh, Spanish is so hard. Well, let me tell you one thing. Spanish only has five vowel sounds. English has 15. So you tell me which one is the easy language again. Uh, now, all jokes aside, uh, I do realize that regardless of my pronunciation of, of the word inaugurated, right? We're, we're talking about inaugurated eschatology. Thank you. I was saying it in front of the mirror like 2000. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I do realize that the word is kind of, it, it's, it's not a very common word, right? It's not a word that we use all the time. Uh, one particular time in which we use it um, happens every four years on January 20th. Can anyone tell me what happens every four years on January 20th? The president of the United States gets inaugurated, right? And that basically means that the president who has been elected comes and is inaugurated. He begins to exercise his, uh, his role as the president. And so that's basically what we mean when we say that eschatology has been inaugurated. Eschatology refers to to the last things, right? To, to the study of the things that happen last. And so we are saying, well, actually, the last things, the last, the, the end times have already been inaugurated, right? That's not something you hear often, right? Because when you think of the last days, you think of something that is future to us. But the New Testament writers would actually argue otherwise and say, we live in the end times, And this actually happened the moment that Jesus came, the moment that Jesus uh, uh, died on the cross, the moment that he resurrected, when he ascended into heaven, when he seated at the right hand of, when he was seated at the right hand of God, and when he sent his Holy Spirit, the, 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 the combination of all of those things marked the inauguration of the kingdom of God, the inauguration of, uh, of the end times, right? So I, I, you know, I think that might be something maybe new to hear for some. Um, it is interesting that Paul, uh, he is writing to the, to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. And he is talking to them about the things that happened to the people of Israel in the Old Testament. And one of the things he tells the Corinthians, this is the application for the people, uh, for, the, for the church, he says, now these things happened to them, that is to Israel, as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, for us, for the church. And then listen to what he says. On whom the end of the ages has come. So here is Paul writing to, to the, the early church, the first generation of believers, and he is telling them, the end of the ages has come upon us. And so we can go from there and extend it all the way to when Jesus returns, which we don't know when Jesus will return, and say, from the first coming of Jesus to the second coming of Jesus, that is the end of the ages. That is the end times. So I'm going to give you a brief summary of of last week, and then we will dive into into our topic today. And my hope is is that today's sermon would be um, very, very practical. I know that last week was maybe a little bit too theoretical and, you know, always, I appreciate people's feedback and, and always keep me in check because I definitely tend, I, I like all the, you know, all those details, all, all the theological things, but I do 
want to make sure that what we are learning, what we are you know, bringing into our, into our heads, into our minds, that those things are affecting the way that we live, right? If we are just learning a bunch of information, but it is not affecting how we live, then it's pretty much useless for us. Um, so summary of last week, basically last week, we talked about the inaugurated kingdom of God. We define the kingdom of God as God exercising his power as king over his people who enjoy his presence in the place that he gave them, right? So we had four aspects, power, people, presence, and place. And so what we did last week is we went through the story of the Old Testament and we showed how from the moment that Adam and Eve fell, from the moment that sin sin entered into the world, we learned that that's the very moment that eschatology began in the sense that people started looking forward to the future. People, people started looking forward to a time when the kingdom of God would be restored. When the power of God, not that God lost his power, but people rebelled against the power of God, right? So when people would come back under the power of God, when, the pe- when Adam and Eve and their descendants would become the people of God, they started looking up to a time when the presence of God would be amongst, among his people uninterrupted and they began to look forward to a time when they would finally be back in the place that God created for them. And so we trace that throughout the Old Testament. Then we talked about how uh, the, the incarnation of Jesus, the first coming of Jesus, that's when the kingdom of God was inaugurated. That's when this hope began to be fulfilled. But there was actually some confusion. We are not the only ones that, that maybe were a little bit confused about the idea of an, an inaugurated kingdom. Uh, the disciples were confused as well. And so if you turn with me uh, uh, to Acts 1, I want to read what happened to the disciples and, and kind of the, the misconception that the disciples had, or maybe not misconception, but just kind of the confusion that the disciples had. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. This is after Jesus has resurrected. And so Acts is the second volume of Luke's gospel, basically. So Luke introduces it and says, you know, he's writing this for a guy named Theophilus. And he says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and, to, and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so this is when the disciples kind of have a little bit of confusion, right? Notice verse six, when they had come together, the disciples asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So there's a confusion, right? They're asking, okay, everything happened, right? The things that the prophets prophesied already happened. Messiah came and you died and now, and you rose again. So the, the, the logical step now is that you will restore the kingdom of God to the people of Israel. And when I used to read this passage, I thought that Jesus was kind of dodging the question, but Jesus doesn't dodge questions. He just has a really clever way of answering. So verse seven, he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority. So that's kind of where I thought like, oh, He's kind of giving them a non-answer, but he does respond to them. He says, but you will receive power. Remember, one of the ideas of the kingdom of God is power. So you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The Holy Spirit is the presence of God, right? So he is saying, you will receive power. The presence of God will be with you and you will be my witnesses. You will be my people in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, he is shifting things. 
The disciples were thinking that the kingdom of God meant the restoration of Israel as a nation, but Jesus is saying the kingdom of God means the spread of the kingdom of God, not just to the nation of Israel, but to the whole world. That's why he, start, you know, he starts with Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. The kingdom of God, remember, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It starts little, starts small, but it spreads, it grows, it, it, it turns into a tree and it reaches to the whole world. And so in verse nine, it says, when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So here we are, 2,000 years later, still looking up into heaven, right? Or not necessarily looking up, but still waiting for the Lord Jesus to return. Now think about this for a moment. When Jesus left, how many men did he leave? 12, right? I mean, sure, there were more disciples, but he, in, in fact, the very next section of this passage is the appointing of the 12th disciple, right? So he started out, it, what started out like a small mustard seed with 12 men and a few other disciples, it has become what we have today. And I'm not talking about what we have today right here at Kaleo, right? Because th- there's not that many of us. I'm talking about the kingdom of God. Think about this for a second. How many believers have joined the kingdom of God from that moment in Jerusalem or from that moment with the disciples, with the 12 and today? It's innumerable, right? Imagine all the people who belong to the kingdom of God, not just those who are alive, but those who are already in heaven, in the presence of God. It's a huge kingdom. What begun like a little mustard seed is now something that has grown into a full tree. And we don't even know how much larger the kingdom of God will get. And we don't know how many more years this age will last. But we are continuing to wait for Jesus' return as he promised. And as it was described by these two angels in Acts 1. So what does it mean for us? What is the point for us that God's kingdom has already begun, that God's kingdom has already been inaugurated? Well, this means for us that the mindset of those who understand, and this is the main point of of our message today, the mindset of those who understand that the kingdom of God has begun um, or that we have, yeah, maybe I have it somewhere else. Yeah, this is not the main point, but the mindset of those who understand that the kingdom of God has begun, that we live in the last days, Uh, as it was foretold by the prophets, our mindset will be radically changed. We will reorient our lives to fit the reality of the kingdom of God. One of the things that the New Testament authors understood, and, and I already touched on this a little bit, they recognized that they were already living in the end times. And they lived accordingly. And so my question for us is, Do we understand, do we truly believe that we are living in the end times? And if so, are we living accordingly? One of uh, uh, several weeks ago, we talked a little bit about our church's mission statement. And if you remember, I mean, it's on our website. I don't know how often you visit our website. I'm guessing not very often. But if you remember, our, our, our mission as a church is we follow Jesus and promote his kingdom, his universal kingdom in every sphere of life. Because we understand that God's kingdom has already begun, because we understand that Jesus is already seated at the right hand of God, because we understand that we are living in the end times, then we shift our mindset. Then we have a different focus. When you go to the eye doctor, if you... If you've ever been to the eye doctor, uh, I see many of you wearing glasses, but I do know that people that should be wearing glasses don't like to wear glasses. So 
I'm assuming that a lot of you have been to the eye doctor. Um, when you go to the, to the eye doctor, they, he shows you, they show you an eye chart, right, with all those letters, big letters that start getting smaller and smaller. And you have to, you know, stand or sit at a distance and you have to read the letters. And then if you need glasses, there comes a point where you just can't read the letters anymore. Uh, but the doctor has this, you know, nifty machine that uh, has lenses and he just keeps, you know, putting them and asking you, can you read it now? Yes. Okay. Read line four, five. I don't know. And then, you know, the doctor keeps adjusting them and it gets to a point. I, this is kind of, if you've never been to the eye doctor, let me tell you, this is a little bit nerve wracking because you're like, these two, I don't notice a difference between these two. Like they both look really good. But anyway, that's besides the point. My point is that eventually when you get to the right one, all of a sudden everything is readjusted, right? Your vision is readjusted. You have a different focus. And so I like to, you know, just suggest as, as a way of helping us understand this, I'd like to suggest that inaugurated eschatology is like that lens. Inaugurated eschatology is a lens that we put on and we realize that the kingdom of God has already begun. We live in the end times and therefore we cannot look at things the same way. We need to shift our focus. We need to shift our mindset. We need to reorient the way that we live. Remember the parable of, uh, of the man who found a, a field with a treasure? Right? This is the parable that Jesus told in Matthew 13. Uh, it says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. When we find the kingdom of God, when we realize that the kingdom of God has begun, we have to be like this, like this man. We have to reorganize our lives around the kingdom of God. We have to do whatever it takes to partake of the kingdom of God, to live for King Jesus. Everything else takes second plane. Our priority is the kingdom of God. Please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. Peter, uh, one, the, the apostle Peter, I, I love that he has a very eschatological mindset. If you read 1 Peter, 2 Peter, you'll see that Peter is very mindful of the fact that we are in the end times. Not that Paul isn't, but you know, we don't have as much, as much literature from Peter as we do from Paul. So I do feel like, like Peter's letters are very much like, hey, this is happening. This, it, the, 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 we are living in the end times. And so I really like uh, the mindset that he has. And so in 1 Peter chapter 4, Verse seven, we receive some very practical instruction on how we should live in light of the end of all things. And so 1 Peter chapter four, verse seven, Peter writes, the end of all things is at hand, right? So, you know, it's kind of, I, I love this passage because it's like, eh, eh, alert, the end of all things it's at hand. It's happening. This is happening. And so you would imagine that he's, you know, going to give you like a bucket list, like a quit your job and, and <laughs> sell all your properties and get ready. Start looking up. But what, what does he say? He says, therefore, be self-controlled. It's not something you would expect, right? Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers because we know that Jesus is coming at any time, because we know that we are living in the end times, we should be self-controlled. Not go, you know, crazy, quitting our job and just acting as, as if, you know, there's nothing to look forward to, but realizing that we have a king and he has given us a mission and we need to obey him. We need to love him. We need to obey his commands and also sober-minded. Again, you know, not, just not going crazy. We're going to touch a little bit more on this idea of sober-mindedness. Uh, but I want to read the next part. In, in verse 8, it says, Above all, so he's, he's still giving us instructions. And this is the second instruction. He says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, 
since love covers a multitude of sins. So the command that we have in light of the end of all things being at hand is that we should love one another. Remember Jesus' words to his disciples when he said, people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another, right? So do we want to give a testimony to the world that we serve King Jesus? Then we need to be loving one another. People who understand that we live in the, in the end of the age, that we live in the end times, don't do crazy things, but people are sober-minded, are self-controlled, and we love one another. We prioritize loving. And, and I love how it says here that love covers a multitude of sins. Love doesn't hold grudges. Love doesn't accuse others. Love doesn't judge others. It doesn't look down on others. Love recognizes that we are all in equal need of God's grace and forgiveness. Right? If we, real, if we understand that Jesus is coming just as he promised he would, then we all realize, wow, that person over there, my, my brother, my sister over there, I am in, in, in as much need as they are of a savior. They are in as much need as I am of grace because Jesus is coming. In verse nine, he says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And, you know, I've pointed this out multiple times, right? Hospitality is not the first word that comes to mind when you think about the end of the end of times, right? It's not like, hey, the world is ending. Hey, do you want to come over to my house for dinner? <laughs> but because we understand that, that the end of all things is at hand, we show our love for people by having people over to our house, by inviting them out for dinner. But at the same time, we recognize that hospitality is much more than just having people over for dinner. I, I, I had not really thought about this, but I did like a super, super, super fast word study on hospitality. And I'm not going to get to all the details right now. I'm, hope, I'm hoping to eventually uh, preach through First Peter. So maybe we'll touch on that. It, I don't know, in a couple of years, who knows? <laughs> um, but the idea of hospitality, uh, I, it was so interesting to me that it, it, the, the root words of hospitality are literally love for the stranger. And in fact, you know, in Hebrews 9, uh, the, the writer of Hebrews, when he talks about hospitality, he, he talks about uh, uh, hosting strangers, right? People that maybe you don't even know. People, people that maybe you don't even feel comfortable with, right? So hospitality is much more than just, than just having people over. Hospitality is, uh, the word hospice is actually related to the word of hospitality, right? It is caring for the needy. It is caring for the stranger. It's taking care of the needs of those who are sick, of those who need help. Christians of all people, we should, we should be the most hospitable people because we understand that the end of all things is at hand. We should be the most ready to receive and welcome strangers. Right? Think about this. If we truly believe that Jesus is king, if we truly believe that Jesus is reigning, if we truly believe that the kingdom of God is greater than any other worldly kingdom, then why are we scared of immigrants? Or why are we scared of homeless people? Why are we scared of the sick or, or the needy or our neighbor that we don't like that much? Right? If, if the kingdom of God it's not able to, to you know, it, or let me put it this way. If the kingship of Jesus is not able to protect us from migrants or homeless people or neighbors or people who make us uncomfortable, then might as well go and worship a different king. But those who understand that Jesus is king, those who understand that the end of all things is at hand, take advantage of the opportunities of hanging out with strangers and bringing the gospel to them. 
We take the opportunity of hosting people into our homes or our church building or wherever it is that we host them and use that as an opportunity to continue to promote the kingdom of God to them. In verse 10, it says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. Because the world is ending, Peter says here, use your spiritual gifts. Each one of us who is in Christ has received a spiritual gift that is to be used for the edification of the body, for the building up of our fellow brothers and sisters. And so when we do not prioritize the gathering of the saints or in the words of the writer of Hebrews, when we neglect the gathering of the saints, then we are depriving our fellow members from the gift that God has given us to serve our brothers and sisters. And we are also keeping ourselves from being ministered by our brothers and sisters who have also received a gift from God to minister to us. So these things, love, hospitality, the use, of, the use of gifts, all of these happen in the context of the local church, right? You cannot practice love for your brothers and sisters or hospitality or the use of gifts in isolation, right? All of these things require other people in order to be able to do them. And so because the end of all things is at hand, let us commit to a local expression of the kingdom of God. Let us commit to our, to our church body, right? Let us commit to the people that God has, has um, placed in front of us for us to love them, to host them, to build them up with our gifts. And we do all of this so that God is glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong glory, dominion forever and ever. Amen. One of the things that Peter mentions is self-control, soberness. And so that is actually the, the second point in our, in, our, in our message here, right? So the first point is when we understand that the kingdom of God is, is, has been inaugurated, when we understand that we live in the end times, we shift our focus. That, is, that was the first point. And we have soberness. That is the second point. So this soberness comes as a result and of the certainty of Jesus' return. When we understand that Jesus is coming back, we need to understand that when he comes back, there's two things that are going to happen. Jesus is coming to save his people, and Jesus is coming to judge his enemies, right? The first time that he came, the first coming of Jesus was not a time for judgment. Right? It was a time for him to bring and proclaim the, to, to proclaim the gospel, to preach repentance, to preach the good news of the kingdom. But the second time that Jesus comes, he will save those who repented, those who accepted his message, those who submitted themselves under his kingship, and he will judge those who are his enemies, those who continue to rebel, those of whom we read in Psalm 10, right? The, the people that right now are saying, there is no God. The people that right now do not consider God and they continue to oppress others. And so there are three things that I want to talk about here in terms of this soberness. Soberness should lead us to fear, faithfulness, and faith. Fear, faithfulness, and faith. So first of all, fear. What do I mean by this? Well, in the Old Testament, the people of Israel had this expectation for the day of the Lord, right? The day of the Lord is an eschatological term. And it basically means that. It means when God himself will come and judge his enemies and save and deliver his people. And so, of course, you can expect that the people of Israel were very expectant of the day of the Lord, right? Because the people of Israel, for, for, a, for a lot of their history, they lived under the power of other nations, 
They lived under the power of their enemies. And so they were very, very expectant of the day of the Lord. But a lot of the prophets, when they were writing to the people of Israel, they kept pushing this point forward. They kept saying, basically, why are you so confident that when the day of the Lord happens, you will not, the, you will not be the one who is judged? In other words, like, why, why do you wish the day of the Lord to come so soon when the day of the Lord might mean judgment for you? That's basically what, what the, a lot of the prophets in the Old Testament are saying. And so, for example, uh, uh, in Amos, Amos chapter 5, I was smart and I, pl- and I put a bookmarker on Amos because I would have spent way too much time looking for it. Amos chapter 5, and you're welcome to turn there, verses 18 through 28. This is one of those warnings. This is one of those times when, when one of the prophets, the prophet Amos, writes to the people of Israel And he warns them about the day of the Lord. Amos 5, verse 18. He says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? And that this is God's word for the people of Israel, not for everyone, but for the unfaithful. He is saying, I hate, I despise your feasts. And I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. And then this is what he tells them that he wants. He says, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. This is what God wanted, right? The people of Israel, they were going through all the motions. They were offering all the right sacrifices, doing the right feasts, all the things that God had commanded them, at least superficially. But they were neglecting the heart of what God wanted from them. They were neglecting doing justice. They were neglecting righteousness. They were being hypocritical. This, this is very similar to what Jesus tells people in Matthew 7, verse 21, right? Where he tells them, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. On that day, right? He's talking about the day of the Lord. On that day, Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, of unrighteousness. So being sober-minded means realizing that Jesus is coming to judge his enemies. Jesus is coming to judge those who continue in unbelief, in unrepentance, in hypocrisy. Even if you've grown up in a church your whole life, even if you, like the people of Israel, continue to go through all the motions and do the right things, sing the right songs and say the right prayers, but your life is not reflecting the songs that you sing and the prayers that you say, then you need, to, you need to analyze your heart. You need to come to Jesus. You need to heed his calling for repentance, right? Remember that when Jesus came, the very first words that are recording about his, his, his earthly ministry is repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And so all of us, all of us, when we think about the kingdom of God, the first thing that we need to think about is we need to repent of our hypocrisy. We need to repent of our 
unrighteousness, of our wickedness. And we need to come to Jesus who died on our behalf. He died on the cross. He died as a sinless man, as someone who never committed any sin so that anyone that would trust in him, anyone who would repent and trust in him would not experience the wrath of God. This leads us to faithfulness. Remember when we were going through the book of Revelation, in the first part of the book of Revelation, Jesus addresses seven specific churches, right? And the whole book is for, for these seven churches and then ultimately for, for the whole church. But do you, do you remember that phrase that he uses every time he concludes one of the addresses to the letters? He says, the one who conquers. To the one who conquers, I will give this. Or the one who conquers will be granted to be, you know, and, and it's some sort of reward. And that is ultimately the point of the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is a call for the church to conquer. A call for the church to remain faithful. The book of Revelation is saying, yes, I know that this world is insane and things are out of con seem to be out of control and, and kings are raging and, and governments are taking over and things are just terrible but let me show you a picture of what is going on in heaven. Let me show you a picture that God is reigning and Jesus is seated at his right hand. And in light of these realities of God's kingdom having already begun, we are called to live in faithfulness. We are called to conquer. We are called to obey God's commands, to remain standing in the gospel through which we were saved. And then the last part of this, of this point of being sober is part of, part of our soberness is that we have faith. Please turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Verse 1. This is what Paul writes to the Thessalonians. He's writing about the end, you know, again, the end, the second coming. And in chapter five, verse one, he says, now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. What people are saying there is peace and security. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But now notice what he says to believers. He says, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. And then listen to this. This is, this is what a sober per person does. Having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Those who understand that Jesus is king, those who understand that that God is so merciful and gracious that he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for us. Those who have trusted in Jesus, we can live with faith. We can put on the helmet of the hope of salvation. 
If you have repented and trusted in Jesus, you don't have to fear. I mean, yes, we have to have a healthy fear of God, but you can have faith and assurance that God has not destined you for wrath. God has destined you to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Even if you're already dead when Jesus comes back, or if you are still alive when Jesus comes back, if you have trusted in Jesus, if God has saved you by his wonderful grace, there is nothing to be afraid of. You don't have to fear judgment, right? Remember the words of Paul in Romans, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The day of the Lord is extremely good news for those who have trusted in the Lord Jesus. Because the day of the Lord is the time when Jesus will come to rescue us, to save us. And if you have been unfaithful to him, the word of God says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Right? When we think about the day of the Lord, when we think about Jesus returning, I think the reality that all of us face is, I just cannot be good enough. I continue to struggle with sin. I continue to struggle with the same stuff over and over. But God is faithful and just, and he will forgive the sins of those that come to him in repentance and humility. Okay, so the second to last point of the, you know, this different mindset that we have when we understand that the kingdom of God is, has been inaugurated is that we will have an expectation of the end. We will have a, an, an expectation of the kingdom of God to be consummated. Now, there is a couple of things here about this expectation. Number one, we have a realistic expectation and we have an optimistic expectation, right? And I'm putting these two in, in kind of like maybe the two sides of the same coin, right? You have a realistic, some people would like to say pessimistic, but that's not true. It's, it's realistic and then optimistic expectation. So what do I mean by this? Well, I think that we will save ourselves many headaches, sorrows, or disappointments when we learn to live in the tension of a kingdom of God that has already been inaugurated, but that has not been yet consummated, right? We live in, in the tension of that in-between. And so that is kind of an awkward place to be in the sense that we recognize that Jesus is already king. We recognize that, you know, the, the greatest event that, that the, the Old Testament prophets talk has already happened in, in the coming of Jesus and his, in his, you know, his death, his, his resurrection. But we also understand that this is not it, right? As good and, and amazing as being, you know, members of his kingdom and, and being, you know, members of his church, his body, <coughs> as amazing as it is, uh, having the Holy Spirit within us, we need to realize that, you know, we need to have a, a, a realistic expectation that this is not it, right? We need to remember that the kingdom of God has not been consummated, that we do not yet have the full inheritance of what has been promised to us. We need to remember that although Jesus is reigning in heaven, his physical presence is still not yet here on earth. We need to remember that creation is still groaning. The nations are still raging. God's enemies will continue to persecute God's people. In the words of, of John, there are still antichrists in the church, right? Because if, if we think about this, like the church, the, the visible church, what we, the expression that we can see of the church is very imperfect. 
right? A lot of times, uh, very sadly and unfortunately, there are false teachers or there are false believers. Again, in the words of John, there are antichrists among us. But all of this is because this is not it yet. This is a foretaste of what we expect, of what we hope, but this is not it. We will continue to see a very imperfect image of the church. We will continue to see a world that is still in waiting to be redeemed. You know, or to kind of think about the analogy or the, the, the parable that Jesus told, the weeds, the weeds are still growing together with the wheat and those two will not be separated until the harvest, which is the day of the Lord. So in this sense, we need to have soberness and faith just like the Old Testament, the Old Testament saints did, the Old Testament believers, right? Hebrews 11, when Paul, sorry, when the writer of Hebrews is talking about all of these believers, this is one of the things he says about them. He says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would, have, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So in that sense, we have a realistic expectation. We still await a savior from heaven. We still wait for the physical appearing of Jesus. We wait for the new heaven in the new earth, we wait for the kingdom of God to be consummated. But at the same time, or on the other side of the same coin, we have an optimistic expectation of the kingdom of God. Why? Because we recognize that Jesus is already seated on his throne. Because we recognize that the church is his body and he is spreading the kingdom through his body, right? The earth is being filled with the glory of God through his body, which is the church. And so even though things on earth don't look that great, again, in Revelation, we, have, we are given a window into the heavenly reality of God's kingdom. And because Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, we can live confidently and boldly. When Jesus, uh, you know, when Jesus gave the disciples the great commission, remember the words that he said. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given has been given to me go and make disciples go and fulfill your mission if we understand that all authority has been given to Jesus then we will go and fulfill our mission without fear of man if we truly believe that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church then we will go in boldness realizing that the dominion of darkness doesn't stand a chance against the message of the kingdom of God. If we truly believe that the gospel has the power to transform uh, lives, families, societies, and yes, even nations, then we will go out with boldness, knowing that what started as a little seed is already spreading into a large tree. And so the author of Hebrews also gives us all, uh, a this, the different side, the other side of that coin in chapter 12, where he describes the kingdom that we have received. He says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness, and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the, the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. He's talking about the people at, the, at Mount. Uh, Sinai, for they could not endure the order that was given. Even a beast, if even a beast touches a mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. And then here's the comparison. Here's the kingdom that we have received. He says, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in feastal gathering into the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. 
He is describing the church. Think about this. The author of Hebrews is saying that the church is Mount Zion. The author of Hebrews, when he's talking about the church, he refers to it as a feastal gathering with innumerable angels. When he talks about the church, he refers to it as the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. So while we have a realistic expectation and we realize that, you know, this is not it yet, we also have a very optimistic expectation knowing that what we have is incredible and we wouldn't change it for anything. And finally, and this is a very brief point because I realize, well, not just because I realize that, that we're running out of time, but also it's a brief point by design. When we understand that the kingdom of God is at hand, we take on a missional mindset. The reason why this is a short point is because that's actually our next week's topic, right? Our last theological conviction as a church is a, having a missional mindset. But for now, I just want to mention it briefly. Um, a few weeks ago, I was scrolling through Facebook and Sandra posted something that, that caught my attention and, and it, it, it has not left me. I don't remember the exact words, but basically something to the extent of my residence is in heaven I'm just here recruiting. And so I like that because that, you know, that in a sense, that should be our mentality, right? Our mentality of knowing that our citizenship is that of the kingdom of heaven. And our job here is to bring more people into that kingdom, right? It's to be used as instruments for God's mission. If we truly understand that the kingdom of God has been inaugurated, that Jesus is king, that we live in the end times, then we will have a missional mindset. We will not keep this good thing to ourselves, but we will bring it to the world, right? Especially because that's, that's what we were commanded. We were commended, we were specifically commended uh, uh, by Jesus to go and make disciples of all peoples, of all nations, everyone. Everyone here on the harbor, everyone in our families, in our in our. Uh, in our workplaces, everyone, we are commanded to go and make disciples of all nations. When we understand that we are so undeserving of being subjects of King Jesus, when we understand that we have been given an unshakable kingdom by the grace and the mercy of God and by the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus, then we will have the same mind that was in Jesus and we will sacrifice ourselves, our comfort, our money, our time, our priorities to reach out to those who have, not yet, who have not yet heard the good news of the kingdom of God. Let's pray. God, thank you for the kingdom that we have received, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Thank you that although we have not received our full inheritance. What we have, we wouldn't trade it for the world. We have your presence among us by your spirit. We live in submission to your power, King Jesus. And you have also given us power and authority to go and make disciples. We belong to you. And we long for the day when you will come back to save us. We long for the day when you will create a new heaven and a new earth and we can be in your presence forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.